Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, June 14th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the recently released trailer for Dr. Sleep, the new Stephen King adaptation coming up. And in the feature presentation, I'm going to play audio from a Q&A with writer-director Mike Flanagan. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer of SlashFilm.com. Joining me on today's episode is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so you guys are like the the main Stephen King connoisseurs, I think, on the Slash Film staff. Chris, you wrote a, a big detailed um, trailer breakdown article after this trailer debuted yesterday morning. And uh, Jacob, I know you're you're a fan of this book as well, so I just wanted to sort of open up the floor to you guys and have you talk a little bit about your feelings about this trailer, your reactions to it, before we get into this Q&A uh, audio. So, uh, Jacob, let's start with you. What did you think about this trailer? Uh, for those of you who don't know, Doctor Sleep is a sequel to The Shining, uh, written by Stephen King. And what makes this trailer really interesting is that Stephen King's book of The Shining ends very differently than the film version of The Shining that Stanley Kubrick directed. In that, at the end of Stephen King's book, The Overlook Hotel burns down, and at the end of uh, Kubrick's movie, it does not. And that's just the, the tip of the iceberg of the differences. There are massive sweeping differences beyond that. So... When it comes time to uh, adapt Dr. Sleep, uh, ride director Mike Flanagan uh, has, seems to have made a sequel to the Kubrick film. He, he seems to be borrowing iconography from it. They've recreated uh, sets that you can see in the trailer uh, from the Kubrick uh, movie. And this is fascinating to me because King famously d- does not like the adaptation and thinks it misses the point of his book. And there's always clashes to this day over uh, King versus Kubrick. So I really like both the book of The Shining and the film, even though they are very different beasts. So I'm very curious to see how or if Flanagan compromises between them. But Chris, you actually you actually don't like the book of Doctor Sleep. I think it's fine. But so how does the trailer look to you as somebody who does not like this horse material? Yeah, I'm. I, I, part of me is tempted to finally go back and reread Doctor Sleep, and I probably will before the film comes out, just because I'm curious to see how I feel about it now. But when they, when the book came out, I read it and I was not that big of a fan of it, even though I'm a big fan of Stephen King and I, I love The Shining, both, you know, the book and the film. Um, 
So I was slightly uh, cautious about this whole endeavor because I was just worried it wouldn't turn out that well. And I was also very curious to see how Mike Flanagan was going to handle those dis- discrepancies between Kubrick's film and King's novel. But based on this trailer, I am, I'm sold. I, this trailer is very effective. I love the recreations um, Flanagan is doing here. Um, I, I will say I'm a little disappointed that the whole film has this sort of like blue filter that seemingly every movie must have nowadays because, you know, uh, uh, the original Shining obviously does not have that. And while I don't want this film to look exactly like the original Shining, you know, I, I want it to have its own personality. It, it's a little jarring to see Kubrick's shots recreated so exact except for the color palette like it, it's this weird sort of uh it just throws things off just a little bit if you ask me but beyond that i i'm really impressed with what i see here i love that flanagan is adopting kubrick's um one point perspective shooting which is uh it's this very symmetrical sort of shot where the main character is usually in the center of the frame um it's, it's this thing that kubrick does in a lot of his movies especially in the shining and i thought that was a really nice touch that Flanagan seems to be doing a lot of that in at least this trailer. Um, uh, the casting looks pretty great. Um, I, I can't really get a read on how Ewan McGregor is going to play the character based on this trailer. Cause he doesn't really talk a lot, but I, you know, he's a good actor and I think he'll, he'll do his best. I, I was really impressed with uh, Rebecca Ferguson in this trailer. Cause she looks to be really savoring her, her villainous role she's playing here. So I, I think she's going to be fun. And just overall, I, I just think this looks really promising here's my big question for both of you which is that stanley kubrick has no faith in humanity but mike flanagan as seen in his other work like haunting of hill house does and they have very fundamentally different viewpoints on both horror and human beings how do you how do you think they're going to compromise that or do you do you think they will yeah chris what do you think about that um i think they're just gonna have to compromise i do think they're gonna this film will be more uplifting in the end than uh, the shining Kubrick's is trying not to give away any spoilers, but there, there are some emotional moments in the book. And if, if Flanagan remains sort of true to that, you know uh, I I do think this is going to end up having a much more positive outlook in the end. And that's fine. Um, You know, it, it sort of would mirror what Mike Flanagan did with the haunting of Hill house, you know, Shirley Jackson's novel ends on a very bleak uh upsetting note and uh, mike flanagan's netflix adaptation which is great ends much more uh upbeat and while a part of me was sort of like uh that doesn't feel right because you know i'm so familiar with the novel i you know i also sort of thought it worked for the story flanagan was telling so i have enough faith in him that i think he'll pull it off but we'll see I haven't read this book yet, but one of the things that he talks about in this Q&A that I'll play in just a second is that he and his producer, Trevor Macy, who is also there for the Q&A, they talk about how, yes, there's tons of Stephen King in this movie, there's tons of Stanley Kubrick in this movie, but the reason that they wanted to make it, the heart and soul of the film, is the relationship between Dan Torrance, who is played by Ewan McGregor, who's an older version of Danny, who you know we're familiar with from The Shining, and this little girl named Abra, who is like a main character in the film as well. So it, it sounds like um, 
you know, just talking about Kubrick's nihilism, it sounds like there's a there's a beating heart and soul at at the center of this movie um, that maybe wasn't there, at the, you know, in the original or in uh, in Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, anyway. So, um, Chris, I guess before we end, I know I mentioned just a second ago that you wrote like this big trailer breakdown. Was there, were there any like uh, specific details that you thought were particularly cool or interesting? Um, you know, going frame by frame through this thing, I guess without maybe getting super spoilery with it. I mean, really, the the thing that caught my eye the most were those recreations, which sort of seems unfair because it it seems it kind of like overlooks what Mike Flanagan is doing. Because overlook, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, I didn't even think of that, but yes, very good. <laughs> but um, just beyond that, I, I just just the look in general of the film, aside from that blue filter that I mentioned, there's there's some really cool shots in this, even beyond the the Kubrick stuff, like you know, just the lighting and the the overall tone of the of the film based on this trailer at least looks really um interesting to me cool all right so i think that will probably bring us to the end of our discussion and um guys i just have to tell you i've covered a lot of these types of q a events in my career writing about film but this was the first time that i really walked away from one being so impressed with the uh the way that Mike Flanagan talked about this movie, a lot of times in these sort of Q&A scenarios, you'll get maybe three good answers out of a half hour conversation or something like that. Like, oh, you know, most of the answers just seem like boilerplate kind of stuff. But in, in this case, I, I was so impressed with it that that's, you know, I, I cut together a little video yesterday and posted that on the site. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But um, basically using this audio to sort of uh, inform and, and, just try to spread the word to people and and let them have the same experience I did of like being in the room with Flanagan and, and hearing him talk about this. So that's somebody asked, asked on Twitter if we could publish this as the episode today. Uh, and since news is a little slow, this is like the perfect opportunity to do it at the end of the week. So um, basically what happened was Warner Brothers invited us and a group of other small, a uh, small group of other journalists to um, watch the trailer the afternoon before it premiered online. So this was earlier this week. And then Flanagan and his producer, Trevor Macy, were there to answer questions from a moderator. And eventually the moderator sort of opens up uh, the floor and, and some other, uh, other journalists present ask some questions as well. So um, the audio is not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. They're speaking on microphones, so you don't have to strain to hear it too much. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, w- without further ado, here is the Q&A with Mike Flanagan. I guess we should maybe start um, with the title. Yeah. Sure. What, what does Doctor Sleep really mean? Um, uh, how many of you guys have actually read the, the book? Okay, so you guys you guys already know. Um, so the the title uh, is referencing what Dan actually kind of becomes in his adulthood, especially in the later uh, side of his recovery. Um, you know, Danny, since the events at the Overlook, um, has not used his shine. He, he's tried to bury it because of the danger that he thinks it put him and his family in when he was a kid. Um, but he takes a job as an orderly at a hospice, and he finally starts to use um, the shining just a little bit to try to comfort patients in the moments before they die. He's, he's able to understand that they're about to die. He sits with them and kind of helps them move on. It's actually a very lovely and, and very empathetic um, part of the book. And uh, because of this, he's developed a nickname and a reputation around the hospice. Um, they, the patients know that if he shows up in, in your room late at night, sitting by the bed, uh, it's because it's over. It's because it's time to go to sleep. And so they call him Dr. Sleep, and that's his nickname in the hospice. 
Um, what I thought was pretty great about it when I read, read the book um, was, as a lot of you guys probably know, his nickname as a child was Doc. Um, and that was all from uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons in The Shining. Um, but I, I love that King was kind of able to make it so that the, the abbreviation that the patients would deal with him um, under was still Doc, um, that he kind of gave him a whole new, uh, a whole new context to that nickname. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way of recontextualizing how he was referred to as a kid. But uh, that's, that's where the title comes from. So it's the story of Danny Torrance, but um, 40 years later, I believe, and he's still haunted by what we saw. Oh yeah, uh, and, you know, not uh, not surprisingly, the events uh, <laughs> the events that kind of befell the Torrances at the Overlook um, scarred him pretty completely, and uh, and yes, he is also prone to the same alcoholism and temper um, that his father had, and uh, the the novel picks him up, you know, kind of in the at rock bottom in the throes of, of that addiction and trying to overcome it. Um, and then kind of carries him through his recovery. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, The Shining is about alcoholism and, and Dr. Sleep is actually about recovery. It's a, they, they go together pretty, pretty well that way. So you have multiple uh, source materials here you pull from, right? Can you tell us a bit about, I'm, I guess I'm sure some people are asking themselves, is this a sequel to King's novel? I mean, Kubrick's film, you're kind of balancing everything there. I know it, it's the most common question we've had since the project was announced, and uh, the question we couldn't really answer, you know, until we had material to present, because the answer is really complicated. the The answer to all of those questions for us has always been yes. Um, it, it is an adaptation of the novel Doctor Sleep, which is Stephen King's sequel to his novel The Shining, but this also exists very much in the same cinematic universe that Kubrick established in his adaptation of The Shining and reconciling those three, at times very different, um, very different sources has been kind of the most challenging and thrilling part of this creatively for us. Um, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, the movie's kind of its own thing mm -hmm. um, and has been embraced by all of our, you know, by the Kubrick estate and by King kind of as such, but in a very real sense, we're standing on the shoulders of literary and cinematic giants. Mm -hmm. Which has been, you know, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. But uh, at the same time as a filmmaker, I mean, that must have been such an exciting challenge, right? Oh my God, yeah. Uh, you know, I, as, as a lot of you guys um, know, I've, I am a Stephen King fanatic going back to my childhood. Um, so any opportunity to work on, um, to, you know, play in Stephen King's sandbox has always been a, a dream and an honor for me. But as a student of cinema, um, I idolized Stanley Kubrick, and uh, I think the kind of storm of Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick on this for me has been the most exciting, delightful, intimidating, you know, nightmarish, wonderful, incredible experience that I've ever had professionally. Uh, but it, it has come with uh, with more pressure than I. I, I don't want to say we didn't expect it. We knew what we were getting into, but um, but yeah, it, it's it's been quite overwhelming in a, in a wonderful way. So how did you do it? I mean, how did you find that balance uh, the way you have to respect both King and uh, Kubrick's vision? Uh, very very carefully and <laughs> over uh, over a lot of, of trial and error initially when it came to trying to crack the adaptation. Um, you know, I, I went back to the book first, um, and the big conversation that we had to have. Um, was about whether or not we could still do a faithful adaptation of the novel as King had laid it out, 
while inhabiting the universe that Kubrick had created. And that was a conversation that we had to have with Stephen King to kick the whole thing off. And if that conversation hadn't gone the way it went, we wouldn't have done the film. Um, the, you know, as, as a lot of you know, uh, I imagine all of you know, uh, Stephen King's opinions about uh, the Kubrick adaptation um, are, are famous and, and complicated. Um, and complicated to the point that if you've read the book, you know that he actively and intentionally ignored kind of everything that Kubrick had changed about his novel and kind of defiantly said, you know, nope, this exists completely outside of, of the Kubrick universe. Um, and so the first conversation we had to have, um, other than that we, as fans of King and, you know, apostles of, uh, of, of uh, The Shining, really needed to try to bring those worlds back together again, we had to go to King and, and explain how. Um, and some of that, you know, amounts to very practical questions about certain characters who are alive in, uh, in the novel The Shining who are not alive by the end of the film. Um, how to deal with that, and then in particular, how to kind of uh, get into the vision of the Overlook that uh, that Kubrick had created. And our pitches to to Stephen went over surprisingly well, and uh, we came out of the conversation with not only his blessing to do what we ended up doing, but uh, his encouragement. And um, I think the most nervous uh, that this project has had for me the two most nerve-wracking um, moments of my entire career. And the first was sending the first draft of the script to Stephen King. Um, and that was utterly terrifying, but uh, he, he thankfully really loved it. And the second was at the end, very recently, of, of this uh, post-production process when the film was sent to, uh, to Stephen to watch and also to the Kubrick estate. Um, and how did that go? Both went very well. And uh, that was always the, the hope going in, was that if there was some universe in which Stephen King and the Stanley Kubrick estate could both love this movie. That is the dream. Uh, threading that needle has been, you know, the source of every ulcer we've we've had for the last two years. Well, the other thing is they're both really supportive. I mean, from the Kubrick estate's point of view, they have such a long relationship with Warner Brothers, and they were generous with some of the original plans from from the Overlook. Which you had we, to see his plans. Yeah, <laughs> annotated by Kubrick. It's, it's so cool. It was, that was a good day. Um, and then, you know, King showing his support for, you know, marrying, a, you know, the cinematic tradition that he was maybe less a fan of with the literary tradition that he obviously wrote himself was like, see, there's a lot of pressure. We really needed them to like it. <laughs> but I guess the style pointing is, is good because you're a fan of the movie and the books. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, first and foremost, um, we're fans. You know, uh, and and not just not just casual fans. You know, th this is one of the most influential pieces of cinema. You know, in in my life, and, and has been since I was a child. And, and same for Trevor. And um, and you know, when it comes to to King's work, um, we're both kind of ferociously protective of him because uh, King adaptations can go you know, either way and have. Um, and, and so it's just as critical to us to protect him uh, as a storyteller as much as we can if we're trusted with, with one of his stories. Um, so yeah, uh, this more than anything, um, I think for both of us, was really a chance to, to live a fan's dream um, and to try to protect the thing that we love, uh, the things that we love, and try to bring them together. Um, 
So it's, it's been it's been something. Um, but we already see that in the teaser, I have to tell you. Congratulations. And we've seen some nods to the shining in the teaser. I know you can't go a lot into detail, but can you share um, kind of what, how you decided to incorporate certain aspects of that film in your vision? Oh, certainly. Um, it's interesting, too, because what you see, what you've seen today um, in, in kind of the more iconic imagery that, that, that's been on the screen, um, that isn't taken from the Kubrick film. There's only one shot in the trailer you saw that's actually his footage, um, and it's the shot of the bloody elevators. Um, everything else is us. Everything else is, is our our recreation. And um, so I, I don't want to spoil to what extent and what specific, you know, outside of what you've already gotten to see, uh, what, what we've kind of uh, been able to to revisit from, from Kubrick's world. Um, but I can say that everything that we decided to use, um, our attention was always to detail and reverence and making sure that we were doing it properly. Um, with with the hope that even kind of the most rabid, you know, uh, cinephiles might not be able to tell the difference um, with some of our frames and some of his. So um, that that's always been the goal, and we were able to do that with the full support of of the Kubrick estate, who you know were and willing to provide us with with his. Yeah, they his granted us permission to use quite a few things, and um, but we always kind of approached them with a sense of balance, and that the, and they were supportive of us making the movie that was, as I said, kind of its own thing. And and I think it is critical, too, because, and, and, you know, I tend to go this way because I feel like it's the conversation I've been waiting to have for so long with everyone, but the more we talk about King and we talk about Kubrick and, and The Shining, you know, absolutely, that's a big and exciting part of this for us. But um, the story itself, though, and for those of you who have read the book, you know, you know, the, the story that we're telling primarily um, is its own thing. And it, it has everything to do with Dan and with Abra. Um, and in the same way that Dan, the character, is kind of um, permanently influenced and altered by the events of The Shining, you know, so is our movie to an extent. But it, the divide is also just as great. You know, he's decades removed from those events. And so are we. Um, so while it's definitely a, an element of, of the movie that we're making, you know, the, the heart and soul of the movie and the, and the reason we wanted to make it at all um, was really about this new story between Dan and Abra. And it's unavoidably you know, connected to that, but it is its own thing in a big way. I think it's very important to say that that you, this is a standalone movie. Yes. And that you're not copying Kubrick's style at all. That oh, that, that would be impossible. Yeah. No, but you're executing your own vision here. Yeah, and, and that's something too, you know, as much as we talked about the balance between King and Kubrick, you know, this also uh, going into it, I said there's no way um, that I could ever dare to kind of stand up to direct comparison with Stanley Kubrick. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, at the same, you know, at the end of the day, this is this is one of our movies. This is this is a a Flanagan and Macy intrepid picture, and uh, the priorities that we um, that we brought to it are the same we bring to all of our films. And um, you know, while it definitely celebrates The Shining, uh, I think in a in a wonderful way, this is. This is our story, and um, and it's Dan's story. You know, that's that's the most important thing to us. Well, speaking about Dan, which is a character we know from the pre from The Shining, though he was a little kid. Um, the action takes place now, I believe, forty years later. And um, where is where is Danny at the beginning of this movie? He's not in the best place. Right? No, no, no. We uh, we pick up Dan um, in New Jersey 
uh, and in the throes of his alcoholism, kind of right, uh, right at rock bottom is where we meet him. Um, he's nomadic, he's violent, um, he's crawled so far into a bottle um, that there's, there doesn't seem to be an easy way out. Um, and it's really kind of a strange experience to meet um, your hero kind of at their most, uh, you know, their, their most uh, awful version of themselves. It's, it's a really, structurally, it's really fascinating. Um, and from a writing point of view to kind of be like, this is our hero, ladies and gentlemen, and you're gonna meet him puking, you know, um, in an alley, basically. Uh, so yeah, we, we pick up Dan um, at the lowest point of his life. And more than anything, this is a story about his redemption. Um, and trying to avoid, you know, uh, repeating the same fate that his father, um, that his father uh, had to deal with um, outside of the hotel, just with his own addiction. And and, um, and then we see how he finds um, finds himself really, right? Yeah, and he and he finds himself in a completely new role, which is is basically to try to protect and mentor a child that you know uh, was very much like he was when he was little, a little girl named Abra Stone, um, who shines as well, and, and even more so than he did as a, as a kid. Um, and he's kind of, in, he's kind of thrust into the, into the role that Dick Halloran um, served in his life in The Shining, of someone who kind of very much by chance comes across this gifted child and has to try to guide them a little. And you know, Halloran uh, didn't have that much opportunity um, with Danny, they only met you know, the really the ones. <laughs> um, uh, and in this case, Dan, who doesn't want to have anything to do with The Shining and, and with his own, his own powers, um, is reluctantly kind of brought into a, a situation where he's going to be responsible for someone. Um, and that story, um, I think that that's what really connected us to this. Um, someone who uh, feels so broken in their own life, trying to fix themselves by taking care of someone else. And we thought that was beautiful. Watching and watching the, the young, for those of you, this is not a spoiler for those of you who read the book, but the watching young Abra embrace her powers in the same way that he's eschewed them his whole life, and she really draws him out and completes, you know, he's, he, he's living with the reverberations of these horribly traumatic childhood events that, in a sense, all the audience lived with him, and she is finally the catalyst to draw him out and cause him to deal with that. Which is why we're really lucky to have Ewan McGregor, by the way, because he makes that connection and that arc palpable and relatable. Well, that's, that's exactly what I was going to follow up with. Um, you're making my job easy here. Um, casting is so important, any filmmaker will tell you that. And you've, you have a great actor for quite a complex and rich role, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it was you know, uh, the end result of a pretty exhaustive search. Um, you know, Ewan, I think, just as a, as a movie fan, Ewan brings with him decades of goodwill. Um, you know, for me as a viewer, I, I instinctively like and trust Ewan, which is so important, I think, with, with Dan, particularly because we meet him when he's so low, you know, that, that could be alienating for a viewer. So you really need an actor like Ewan who can kind of wear his humanity on his sleeve. Um, he also, you know, uh, as a bonus, turned out to be one of the nicest, kind of most humble men that uh, that you can imagine on a set, especially someone who's, you know, basically cut off all the limbs of Darth Vader and, you know, uh, has has had this kind of incredible um, pedigree of, of, of iconic roles. Uh, he's he's really incredibly down to earth and, and just a lovely person to have on set. So that that is never a bad thing either. 
How excited was he to get into a role like this? Oh my God! Well, it also it doesn't hurt that he's a huge fan of The Shining, um, and so uh, and we found that with kind of everybody as we were, as we started casting the uh, the nets out for for actors, we found out um, that most of the people um, who were considering doing our film were you know rabid fans. So that was exciting too. But he he dove in headfirst to this. And then we have the character of our brother we've, we've seen in the teaser, the, the, the connection that's established between them. A new character, very important in this movie, who shines in a very special way, right? Oh, indeed. And um, I think that's somebody you guys are probably, when you see the film, going to be talking about a lot. Um, Kylie Curran is her name. And we looked at 900 girls to play Abra. Um, Kylie, this, this is her first movie. Um, she was a self-tape. Uh, it's that story you always hear in Hollywood that you know you, you never really believe of all these very experienced actors coming out for a part, and it's this kid who's never really done anything who turns in the tape who just rises you know all the way up to the top of the pile. And I, I think it's really exciting for us because um, we got to kind of see the birth of a of a movie star in her. Um, she's. A force of nature she's so so fantastic in this film and um, I remember we were we were uh, in prep we had Ewan come down to read with kind of our top candidates and um, a lot of them had done lots and lots of films some of them had done films with us uh, before we were really pulling for and Kylie came in and, and the scene that they did for for her audition with Ewan was uh, the scene you see a piece of in the trailer on the bench where they talk about magic and uh, she just she just was Abra. It was it was one of those things that was so clear, so fast, and it was such a shock for someone who had so little experience to be able to do that. Um, when she left the room, you know, Ewan kind of looked at us, and we were all kind of shell shocked by it. And he said, "It's clearly her, isn't it?" I said, yeah, yeah. And then you have that magic, which is called chemistry, which we never really know if it's going to work or not, but we can see it in the teaser. Uh, they're wonderful together. They the two of them together had had a really very palpable connection and it, it started immediately it, it's really and they're the heart of the movie that relationship between the two of them is so critical that I, I think we we lucked out in a huge way with her but then we have villains don't we and a pretty scary one too played by Rebecca Ferguson who's wonderful in this also yes and uh, Rebecca um, I can't wait to see the comic-con cosplay of Rebecca uh, that'll come out of this I hope um, I thought when I read the book that Rose the Hat was probably the best antagonist that King had written in 20 years when the book was published. I loved that character so much and that a villain, a really great villain is tough because you need to love, fear, and hate them all in the same breath, um, which is why I think it's so rare to do a great villain. Um, and Rebecca Ferguson is is Rose the Hat. I mean, uh, it's she steals every minute of the film that she's in. I think um, it'll become kind of one of those iconic King villains. Uh, if, if you know her from the book, you know, she, she does her justice and that character really left off the page. So it, I'm thrilled for you guys to see more of her on the screen. Yeah, she finds the humanity in some very inhuman things that she does. She does some horrible things. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> which is like, I think I'm going to open for questions. Um, Scott, back there. Yeah, um, 40 years ago, if uh, an audience would have a different threshold for what they thought was horrific or what was scary. And nowadays, if you showed a kid the first Shining, they might shrug their shoulders. So how did you raise the bar in that quotient? Because there's a different expectation level that people have towards horror. Oh, certainly. Um, and it's interesting because I've had that experience where I've shown someone The Shining and they don't, they don't see what the fuss is about. 
I think one of the one of the solutions to that for us was we never approached this movie as a horror movie. You know, um, we always wanted to try to come at it from a different side. And we've done that with a lot of our things, but I don't know if it's ever been more true than with this one. Um, it has horrific elements, absolutely. Um, but one of the things that we were trying to be very careful to do is not to create the expectation that this is a modern horror movie in the way that people expect it. Um, one of the questions that I would ask uh, when we were developing the project and when we would talk about kind of the, uh, the metered expectations audiences have about, in particular, jump scares and startles and the pacing of those, which we're utterly un uninterested in in this film. Um, I would say, what's your favorite jump scare in The Shining? Um, and there isn't one, you know. Uh, and the same is true here. You know, um, we used a lot of the lessons that Kubrick taught us about how to do a psychological thriller, a supernatural thriller, um, in a way that is more about suffocating atmosphere and tension than it ever is about the kind of traditional scares as we understand them today. Um, and so, in in light of that, you know, we we have been very careful not to make the kind of movie. Um, that those audiences would expect. Um, Just really quick, I mean, yeah. like for an audience, for example, a young audience, when they see that scene where Ewan McGregor sticks his head through the door that had been obviously, you know, the axe had cut through, may not get the reference. That's very true. Does, um, it, does it make a difference to who sees the film? That they're going to relate to it differently? Um, we've, been, we've been pretty consistently surprised at even people who haven't seen The Shining, how much of the iconography they recognize. So obviously it's our job to make a compelling movie for an audience if they haven't seen The Shining, and you know we're, we've been trying very hard to do that. But you know The Shining sort of infected, in a good way, uh, culture in a in a very pervasive way, and we find it kind of showing through. You know when we've shown the movie to kind of early audiences, we notice that a lot. So if you haven't seen it, it should still work, but. If you have it, enhances it. Yeah. Although we've been prepared for the inevitability um, that we wanted the movie to still be really enjoyable to the viewer who might, the only thing they might have to say about The Shining Connection is, hey, look, they ripped off Ready Player One. Like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that viewer will be there. We wanted to make sure they'd enjoy it too. Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, Mike, you're a massive horror nerd and Thank you, you have a, you, you're really good with detail. So I'm sure you're aware of all of the other legacy of Kubrick's Shining, from the TV miniseries to the many uh, theories, like your shirt, that it's in some way hints that well Kubrick done. faked the moon landings. Can we expect any sort of Easter eggs or meta narratives or homages to the miniseries or anything like that? Not to be overly spoilery, but at least one major announcement by NASA in the past year is something that I have faked. And this is my confession for that. Um, so uh, you have to let me know what you think it is. But yeah, but yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the uh, when it comes to the the other um, Easter eggs that you can expect, and, and the other kind of influences outside, inside, and outside of the Kubrick film, um, I'll tell you one of the most robust arguments we had was about whether the you know whether the uh, number on the door would be two thirty seven or two seventeen robust argument um, and obviously and we went back and forth about four times of yeah prep. a lot um, and um, you know I actually have quite a bit of admiration um, for the miniseries um, because of not only where they chose to shoot it at the Stanley which is you know really meaningful just as far as the the genesis of the novel um, but for how they treated Jack 
Um, so what you'll see eventually, and I can't talk too much for spoilers again, but what you'll see is, is a, an honest attempt here to try to kind of pull all of that together. Um, there are a lot of Easter eggs within the film, specific not only to Kubrick, but to, uh, to King as well, outside of, of The Shining and, and Doctor Sleep novels. So I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping that this will be exciting for people as nerdy as me. Uh, and um, we, we did go out of our way to try to make sure that, that it would be. So By the way, we had a bet on who would notice the shirt first, yes. so well done. And I'm unsurprised. I'm unsurprised that it was you. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That makes me happy. So, yeah. Well, if I may, I would like to ask a, a small cluster of three questions that are all related to the themes of the novel. Um, I think the novel deals with the duality of death death as a release versus a violent, unwarranted death on the other side. Death as a release, of course, is shown to the scenes that you've mentioned with Dan Torrance as Dr. Sleep granting a release. My first question is, how important is this to the film? How much of those very moving scenes made into the movie? The other part of that equation is, there's a scene, I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about, where you know, steam is gathered, mm -hmm. and it is one of the most shocking scenes I've ever read. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can do this scene in modern cinema, so I'm wondering how you approached it. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, the third and important theme of this book, I think, is how to face childhood trauma and, and get on the road to recovery. And this is a personal question. <laughs> Have you ever dealt with trauma or addiction? Did that influence your work? Wow, uh, wonderful questions, by the way. All three. Cluster. Yeah, it's a hell of a cluster. Um, so, uh, uh, starting with your first question, um, yes, the uh, the scenes of Dan as Doctor Sleep in the hospice um, for me are of critical importance to the film and to the character. And there's more than one, um, and uh, which we can have a, a whole side conversation about the cat, which is a whole other thing that was really tough to pull off, but we we gave it a you know gave it our best shot. Um, the other side of that coin, uh, the other scene that you're referring to, and uh, how many people know what he's talking about, with the steam being gathered? Okay. Um, all I can say about that is uh, I want to make sure that we adapt the book faithfully and that we were never going to be PG-13 anyway. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm curious to see what you think when you see what we did. Um, but yeah, that, that scene on the page uh, was one of the most horrific I'd ever read. Um, it was the same in the script, and man on set. <laughs> but I'm excited to see what you think. Um, and then finally, yes, uh, uh, trauma, especially reconciling childhood trauma, um, has been something that has been really important to me um, in my way into a lot of projects. Um, you know, it really was the heart and soul of Hill House for me. Um, going back to Oculus, I mean, it's, it's something that, that means a lot. Um, addiction as well. You know, I'm uh, I'm from a big Irish family um, who really like to drink a lot, um, and I've not only seen going back into my childhood. I've seen the damage that that's done within my family, um, but I've I've fought with it myself. And you know, at the moment, um, I haven't had a drink in nine months uh, or a cigarette either and the two are related and for those of you that have been stuck with me on the smoke breaks you know that that, that took a while to finally get rid of he's really thrilled about it um, 
because man on set it's just like i'd be outside half the day um there's a a clause in our partnership agreement about secondhand smoke <laughs> and yeah um but uh and especially as i've had kids of my own um the importance of kind of uh of separating both of those things from my life has really become paramount to me um i look at the shining the novel um, which to me has always been the novel written by a man in the throes of an addiction just meditating on the damage he thinks it could do to his family and then I look at Dr. Sleep, and in the same way that The Shining is about addiction, Dr. Sleep is recovery. And I look at an author who is now decades sober, you know, looking back at what his life was like when he wrote that book, and you know, thinking about Tabitha and Joe and Owen and what his family could have, have gone through. And Dr. Sleep to me is so much of this redemption that I think King was trying to articulate that, that he'd accomplished. Um, those themes, which I think are complementary between the two sources, uh, are some of the, the most affecting and important ones for me, and, and some of the things that really brought me to the project and, and made me excited about it. Um, you know, I, I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things that people talk about in respect to the miniseries versus the Kubrick film is how they handled alcoholism and addiction in particular, and how kind of uh, how blatant those themes were handled, you know, to different degrees in both uh, by both directors, and um, I think for us it, it's really kind of freeing because we are dealing with a completely the other side of that coin, and we're dealing with something that you know not only was so personal to King, um, but is is personal to me as well. Thank you. Thank you. But I, one other thing there, I think what's the special thing about Danny Torrance is that we all kind of lived through his trauma. Those of us who have seen The Shining, and you know, it's impossible generally to separate out deeply rooted fear from childhood. And one of the things like we were very keen on exploring in the movie was, you know, it's a very audience oriented, but character forward way of kind of looking at a trauma we all witnessed. Um, when Stanley Kubrick was filming in Elstree Studios, when he was filming The Shining, the set was plagued by kind of strange goings on. I think one of the sets actually burnt down. Mm -hmm. A lot of publicity in the UK about that. Um, was there any kind of spooky, weird things happening on your set? Uh, we didn't have anything quite like that. Um, our set was, uh, w the crew and the cast were kind of too busy riding the big wheel around and, gi and giggling. Um, for it to be too ominous for us. Um, so no, we, He's not kidding, we had an adult size big did. wheel that you could ride around the hotel. It was the coolest thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, we, we didn't really have uh, anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think the scariest thing for us was uh, making sure that we got the details correct. You know, what we did have instead of, of the fire or anything like that, was this wall of reference photos that we were agonizing over because one of the other things whether it's confessing a uh confessing faking the moon landing or or whether it was just because he was more interested in other aspects you know you can't argue that uh, stanley kubrick was terribly concerned with continuity in that film um and it you know in at, in places is is part of his genius and in other places I think having now gone and stepped into those shoes a few times that it's like, oh wow, I understand this is really about getting the best shot. This is really about you know, finding a symmetrical frame. Um, so yeah, uh, that was kind of the overriding frightening part for us. But yeah, we didn't, we, uh, we, we did not befall the same fate. We weren't there nearly as long either. He was there forever. 
when they shot that, what, a year and a half? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, in production. We were talking to, um, uh, I'm Twitter friends with Danny Lloyd, um, who played Danny in, in, in the original, and, and uh, we were talking about you know some of the stories that he remembers from that year and a half of his life on that set and yeah it sounds insane it sounds just amazing but uh, ours was a little more uh, a little more jovial i think if you want to work in genre filmmaking though it is actually scary to that you shouldn't mess this up yeah <laughs> well mike uh, trevor thank you so much we've seen oh, a no. taste of what's to come and we're so excited and uh, thank you for being with us here oh my today. god thank you guys and there's plenty plenty more, one more, one more yeah was there was there one more, more? yeah yeah the last one from jack nicholson to ewan mcgregor uh when you cast it ewan mcgregor were you looking for somebody that had some kind of common thread with jack nicholson and in case which kind of common threads well you know we we definitely wanted it to be someone who looked like he could actually be you know the the offspring of Nicholson and Shelley Duvall um, more though it was about making sure that we had someone who felt like Dan to us you know I I never really wanted to worry too much about making sure there was an element of Jack because there really doesn't need to be in Dan um, you know his last memory of his father he was five years old and um, you know Ewan can still Arch, arch the brows and throw a mean smile at you like it, he can do it um, but that was never really the point for us it was really like okay does he look like he could be Danny Torrance then great then, then that's plenty um, we, we spent a little more time on some of the other characters that were already announced you know uh, that you guys have, I'm sure are, are well aware of uh, Alex Esso who's playing Wendy um, you know Alex uh, definitely is in the, the same kind of physical places as uh, Shelley Duvall. Like it, the, there is a resemblance there that's pretty interesting, but it's also still her own take on the character. So even though there's similarity, we, we were trying to also make sure that this never was gonna be about <coughs> imitation, that this really needed to kind of be its own, its own expression. And now we can't wait to see it. Well, thank you so much. Thank and you congratulations. Thank you so much for being here. All right, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Um, Chris, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, I'm at Slash Film every day, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. Jacob, how about you? I'm also at Slash Film every single day, and I'm on Twitter, or I'm at Jacob S. Hall. All right, I am also at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. I'd love to know what you guys thought about this Q&A, um, this, this audio, if you think we should do more stuff like this, uh, assuming anybody else is as eloquent and, and well-spoken as Mike Flanagan in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, if you do send us a, a message, please be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you on Monday.